right. <clears throat> Little twist. I'm up here this week. <laughs> uh, it's all good. <clears throat> Actually, Tyler, uh, it has been, man, one of the most encouraging things that I've gotten to see. I haven't really been all that involved with the, with the ministry they've been doing, but uh, to get to sit on the front row and see the work that Tyler and Frilly have done, caring for and loving and serving those in our downtown community that are experiencing homeless has just been one of the most encouraging things that um, I've gotten to see this last year. So, Tyler, thank you for all the hard work that you've done there. Uh, and thank you to all of you who've been a part of it, right? So, I'm Ryan, one of the pastors, and we are continuing through Matthew this, this morning. We're continuing through our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We are in Matthew 7. Verses 15 through 20. So if you could turn there, if you have a Bible, turn there. There's also Bibles under the pews or under the chairs, excuse me. Wow. Uh, that was a flashback to my Anglican days. <coughs> um, under the chairs, and then it'll also be up here on the, on the screen. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Oh, and if you would please stand to, if you're able to, stand for the, to honor the reading of God's word. <coughs> Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time that we get together this morning to open your word, to hear your voice. Lord, I pray that you would still our hearts and our souls this morning. Help us to listen, to take in your word, to respond in faith. Help us to see you more clearly as you truly are. We thank you, Lord, that you forgive our iniquity. You heal our disease. You redeem our life from the pit. You crown us with steadfast love and mercy, and you satisfy us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. And I pray that would be our experience this morning. Lord, would you arouse our, our hearts and our souls to faith, to love, and to action. May you be glorified. And may the Holy Spirit be powerfully at work this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I, I still have fond memories of my middle school science teacher, Mr. Adam Cech. Uh, he, was the, the, he was like a teddy bear when you were obeying and like a grizzly bear when you were disobeying in the class, which is, I think, kind of like the perfect combination for a middle school teacher. Uh, I guess you, you need a little bit of that tenderness and toughness with that age group. Um, I remember the uh, experiments, the science experiments that we would do, trying to throw 
an egg off the top of the roof of the building to, you know, we had to invent something, some kind of contraption so that it wouldn't break. Uh, so I remember that. I remember the baseball-themed quiz games that we did leading up to tests. I also remember his disciplinary measures, which I thought was, was, was really rough. We, if you were talking, if you were not paying attention in class, if you were being disruptive, especially he would just walk by your desk and set a dictionary on your desk. And that meant that you had to write out of the dictionary until such time as he thought you had atoned for your sins. And uh, so I, you know, in middle school, I did some dictionary writing. Uh, but one of the most vivid memories that I have uh, from his class is actually a story that he told. And it was this, that a, a trail guide was leading a group through a hike in the, in the wilderness out on the west coast. And along the way, this trail guide stopped to point out some mushrooms that he saw growing on the, the ground. He pointed out to his companions that, that he was able to identify these because of some of their traits, and because of that, he knew they were safe to eat. So he picked the mushrooms and popped them in his mouth and ate them, and then they continued on their hike, and a little bit later on in the hike, he started to feel ill, and then he collapsed, and then he later died. And what had happened is, of course, he had incorrectly identified the mushrooms. What he thought was an edible mushroom that was common to that area actually turned out to be a dangerously similar poisonous mushroom that was commonly found on another continent and somehow had made its way there to the west coast and his mistake wound up being fatal. Now I have no idea if that story is true or if that was just a legend that a middle school teacher likes to invent to terrify their students. But either way it worked and I still remember his point, which was first, of course, the lesson is don't eat wild mushrooms. Don't do that. And I took that to heart. But the broader principle was this, that outward appearances can be deceiving. Just because something sounds nice doesn't make it true. Just because something looks good doesn't mean it is good for you. And just because someone appears to have good intentions does not mean that they do. Our appearances can be deceiving. And that's exactly what Jesus is warning his disciples about in this passage before us this morning. We're in this third and final section in the Sermon on the Mount. It's entirely focused on how we respond to Jesus' teaching in the sermon. And this morning, I'd like us to consider how we will respond to Jesus' warning in this passage by considering what to beware, and what to desire, especially in regards to spiritual leaders. What to beware and what to desire. So first, what do we beware? Jesus warns his disciples to beware the dangers of spiritual imposters. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's saying that there will be those who come among you, who put on the appearance of a well-intentioned Christ follower with a word from God, right? But inwardly, they have other motives. They may be confused, you know, in the best cases here, perhaps they're just confused and they may be thinking themselves as Christians, they may have good intentions, but actually they're 
they're not committed to Christ, and so their message when they go to teach you does not align with what Christ would teach you. Or they may be attracted to a position of influence, so they seek out a role in a church in order to be admired and listened to and and elevated and gain a following and that sort of thing, and and inwardly the whole time they are self-absorbed, and their teaching is going to be centered more on themselves than on their people. Or in the worst case, they, they may be malicious, have malicious intent. They're seeking to do harm. They're seeking to stir up conflict, to mislead the church, to undermine the work of the gospel and the faith of God's people. And Jesus cares for his church. He wants it to flourish. He cares about his, his disciples that he's been investing in for these, these years. And he's warning them, be on guard against these threats. They are like wolves that are trying to sneak into the sheep pen. How does this happen today? How are we susceptible to this today? You know, there are probably a handful of areas we could explore. We could talk about the influence of digital content, social media. We talk about the dangers of platforming within the church. But I just want to explore one And that is our propensity to look for the wrong qualities in leaders. You know, in in the modern West, especially, we often disproportionately prize personality and persona and, and public abilities above other traits. And this can manifest in the the stereotypical ways that you, you think about, such as being drawn to leaders that have a lot of charisma and a lot of polish, you know, the folks who are great in large groups, and they're great at gathering crowds, and they have the gift of woo, you know, people just hang on their words, that sort of thing. But it can also show up in other non-biblical expectations, that is gravitating towards leaders who have a really deep intellect, or insightful cultural analysis, or overpowered public speaking gifts. And there's nothing wrong with those things per se. They can be wonderful gifts, wonderful strengths that are used for building up the church, and we ought to be grateful for them when they're used well. But it's important to remember that of all those traits, charisma, polish, people skills, the woo, deep intellect, insightful culture analysis, strong public speakings, not one of those traits is a biblical qualification for leadership. Not a single one of them. And yet, how often do we make decisions about who we will listen to, who we will follow, what church we're going to be a part of, or which pastor we are going to bring in based primarily or even exclusively on those traits? This is not simply a Western problem. I'm not just poo-pooing, you know, America here, although we're bad at it. Uh, The church is dealing with similar struggles in the global south and East. And it's not just a modern problem either. You know, last year we worked through 2 Corinthians. You remember, if you were here for the series, you recall that the entire setting for that letter was Paul's ministry to a church that was dealing with this issue of false apostles that had worked their way into the church and they were undermining his ministry and his authority there and they're teaching contrary ideas about the qualifications for leadership in particular. So Paul faced the same battle 
that we did within 20 or 30 years after Jesus' crucifix, crucifixion and re resurrection. This is not new, but it is dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. And so what are we to do instead? Well, Jesus shows us the way using another metaphor, and he turns to an agricultural one. He says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. If you've ever had tree work done in your house, you know how difficult it can be sometimes to discern if a tree is, is healthy or unhealthy. Uh, I had a family member tell me they had to have a tree taken down because it was leaning on their property, and um, they, it looked fine, relatively fine from the outside, and then when the tree guys came and they took this down, they said, come over here and look at this. The entire inside of the tree was hollowed out. I mean, this thing was one strong gust away from just falling over and crashing on their cars, on their house. But from the outside, it looked fine. Jesus' Jesus' point here is simple. If we are to beware the dangers of spiritual imposters, we need a way to recognize the difference between healthy and unhealthy spiritual leaders. He uses that word twice, recognize. And Jesus points to a method of recognition. He says, the fruit that they bear. And he has this kind of curious saying. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, right? And to us, we're like, well, I don't know much about that. But one, <laughs> maybe you do. Uh, one commentator illuminated this for me, though. He said, in Jesus' day, everyone knew that the buckthorn had little blackberries, which could be mistaken for grapes and that there was a thistle whose flower from a distance might be mistaken for a fig. But no one would confuse the buckthorn and the grape once he started to use uh, the fruit to make some wine, and no one would be taken in by thistle flowers when it came to eating figs for supper. What's his point? He's saying that from a distance, at the right angle, the guise of a false prophet can be persuasive. But upon evaluation, upon examination, when you look closely, you're able to recognize the true from the false. This is the art of discernment. It's not judgmentalness, which, of course, Jesus has instructed us against earlier in the sermon. And it's not having a, a kind of a suspicious disposition towards the, the church when you come in. Each of those would be kind of these negative critical attitudes that, that aren't healthy. It's discernment. Instead, it's, it's a positive attitude that is marked by awareness and reflection and evaluation, particularly of the whole of someone's life, not just what's on the surface or what's seen in public. Discernment involves being close. It involves being in relationship. It involves looking carefully. And it involves experiencing personally the produce, the fruit, of someone's life. I was told recently that there aren't enough C.S. Lewis and Tolkien references in our sermons. And so, for, I forget who told me that, but for whoever asked me for this <coughs> C.S. Lewis illustration for you, um, Lewis masterfully depicts this in his final book in the, the Narnia series, In the Last Battle. If you read that, you remember Shift, the ape, manipulates Puzzle, the donkey, to wear this lion skin, to put this 
on it. They find this lion skin. He persuades him to put this on his back, and then he uses that to cun the Narnian beasts into thinking that Aslan has returned. And Shift has this whole setup, right? He, he doesn't let them see Aslan. He keeps Aslan in a tent all day long. He only lets them come out for a, a brief moment when the, all the beasts are around the campfire, so they're kind of far away. It's dark. It's, it's a little bit hard to see. And so he lets Aslan come out, and Aslan never speaks to them. Shift is always kind of his, his, his messenger, and from, so from far away and in the dark, it looks real. And through this setup, Shift deceives and enslaves the Narnian beast to do his bidding. The beast that Aslan had previously set free, he comes in and enslaves. And you recall in the book how the main characters, every time they, they hear about this, they hear what's going on, and these horrible things that Aslan had been apparently commanding them to do, they would say, Aslan wouldn't do that. They would say he wouldn't do that. They couldn't make sense of this. They're frustrated. They're confused. They're disoriented. It ran contrary to everything they knew about him. And because they knew Aslan, they knew that this couldn't be him. And sure enough, when Eustace and Jill and the other characters get a close enough look at the donkey, when they finally, about, I think about midway through the book, when they finally capture him and they get up close, they just start dying laughing because they see how unconvincing this actually is. When they finally saw the costume, they realized it was a fraud. It was the exercise of discernment and careful consideration up close that revealed the truth. So true is that for us. So we need to beware of deception by exercising discernment. But if that's the negative side of it, what's the positive side of it? And this brings us to the second point, that is, what do we desire? What should we desire in spiritual leaders? What is the fruit that we should look for? There are healthy trees and diseased trees, and there's good fruit and there's bad fruit. What's the good fruit that we should look for in leaders? How do we know when someone is le a legitimate, healthy spiritual leader, especially when the false ones are so good at deception? And, you know, the Apostle Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, who was another young minister uh, of the gospel, and he says this in 1 Timothy 4, 12. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And I think those serve as a fantastic framework for the fruit that we should look for, the qualities that we should look for in spiritual leaders. The first is speech. Healthy leaders speak the word of God consistently. They teach the whole counsel of God. Don Carson describes that saying this, quote, that must mean to teach the burden of the whole of God's revelation, the balance of things, leaving nothing out that was of primary importance, never ducking the hard bits, helping believers to grasp the whole counsel of God, that they themselves would become better equipped to know their Bibles. It embraces God's purposes in the history of redemption and unpacking of human origin, fall, redemption, and destiny, the conduct expected of God's people, and the pledge of transforming power, both in this life and the life to come. 
That is, they proclaim the story of God's redemptive work and the power of the gospel. Every part of it. They do not equivocate. They do not distort or conceal the truth of God. They do not pander to an audience. They do not acquiesce to cultural pressures and the ever-changing whims of society. Rather, they hold fast to the foundations of faith, even when it's unpopular or even dangerous. And of course, this isn't limited to a pulpit or a lecture hall or a classroom. They not only preach the truth of God, their everyday speech is evidence of a heart that has been changed by God. They use their tongues to build up, not to tear down. With their words, they encourage, they counsel, they inquire, they intercede for others. Their speech is saturated with grace because their souls have been flooded with God's grace. And they speak the truth of God and speak as those captivated by God. They speak the word of God consistently. The second quality, conduct. Healthy spiritual leaders demonstrate genuine and growing character. When you're around them, the strongest impressions you will get will not be of their gifts or abilities, although those may be apparent. But it's more than that. What will shine through them most is character. And that is because their life is evidenced by the fullness of the Spirit. They exude the fruit of patience and joy and peace and gentleness and faithfulness and more. Whether it's in their work or in a relationship or if you're out just having fun together with them, you see this unmistakable difference in their attitude and demeanor, and that's because of the presence of Christ in them. You'll not only see Christ's presence in them, but you see the resolve to walk in obedience to him. Healthy spiritual leaders want to grow in conformity to Christ. Their actions align with what they believe and what they say. They're people of integrity. That's not to say that they are perfect. They are not. No one is apart from Christ. But they're growing and seeking ever more to be like Christ. They seek to mortify their sin and to walk by the Spirit. You know, in his letters to Timothy and Titus, Paul gives qualification lists for the appointments of elders in their context. Right? And, and he lists these traits these qualities for elders to serve as overseers and shepherds of God's people. And of all the traits he lists, only one relates to competency. That is the ability to teach. That they hold fast to the faith and they defend the truth. Every other qualification to serve as an elder, to shepherd God's people, is based on character. Every one of them. Healthy spiritual spiritual leaders demonstrate genuine and growing character, which leads to the third quality, love. Healthy spiritual leaders show sincere care for others. They routinely serve others in little and big ways. They willingly sacrifice of their energy and time to help in whatever ways they can. They joyfully share what they have to bless others. They open their homes and their hearts to those around them. They're present with you in the joys of life, but they also sit with you in your pain and walk with you through your suffering. 
They check, check in on you to see how you're doing. They show gestures of thoughtfulness, compassion, and kindness because they sincerely care for you. They labor with your best interest in mind, caring most about the thing of ultimate importance, the state of your soul. They do all they can to foster your growth in the Lord. And they're even willing to step into the discomfort of a difficult conversation if it will be for your well-being. They love their family. They love the church. They love the lost. They love their enemies. And most of all, they love their God deeply, truly, sincerely. Fourth quality, faith. Healthy spiritual leaders walk in humble repentance and dependent faith in Christ. They trust Christ and Christ alone for the salvation of their souls. They do not look to their ministry or to accolades or to influence or to anything else to satisfy the deepest yearning of their soul. They look to Christ. Christ alone is sufficient for them. They do not put on airs about their life, seeking to earn the approval of people. Rather, they humbly admit their mistakes, their failures, their need for God's grace. And they regularly come to the Lord in repentance, owning their sin and seeking God's forgiveness. They do not seek to lead out of personal strength and capabilities, but out of reliance upon the sustaining mercies of God. They do not walk with their chests puffed out. They do not strut. They do not self-promote. Rather, they routinely feel their own inadequacy for the calling at hand. And they make it a practice, almost as automatic as breathing, to cry out to God for help. They endeavor to model a life of dependence on Christ, and in all they do, to share Christ with those around them eagerly, as one who has tasted and seen that he is good, because he is. And finally, purity. Healthy spiritual leaders are motivated by love for Christ and his church. The chief ambition of their heart is not for self, but for the good of others. Namely, they want above all for God's people to find life and freedom in knowing, loving, and worshiping God. They're not driven by dreams of material success and worldly achievement, but by love of their Savior and love for his church. They embody lives that are above reproach because their hearts are set principally on Christ and his kingdom. Their allegiance is to him, and so they endeavor to honor him with their lives as they set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts. And they share in the motivation of our Savior, our good shepherd, who laid down his life for his sheep. Christ was not only the greatest example of a spiritually healthy leader, the perfect picture, of course, of a shepherd that speaks the truth and cares sincerely and is motivated by love. He was the means by which we are brought into the flock of God and led to good pasture. It was his sacrifice that saves our souls and brings us near to God. And so true shepherds of God's flock 
likewise lay down their lives to lead God's people ever closer to their Savior. It's a tough thing as a pastor to go through that list. I can't help but think of Paul's expression, who is sufficient for these things? But then also he says, your grace, O Lord, is sufficient for me and for us. For his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Oh, that God would grant us such courage, such fullness of spirit, such sincere love, such dependent faith, such pure hearts. May we as your pastors and your elders and your deacons and your leaders aspire to set this example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. May God form in his people these qualities in abundance and raise up healthy spiritual leaders in our world which so desperately, desperately need them. May we disciple the next generation towards these ends with courage, with conviction, with resolve. May he grant us wisdom, discernment, graciousness, and endurance to live faithfully as his people in this age. May he work through his power of his gospel and his spirit to bring redemption and renewal in his church around this world. And may he accomplish all this for his glory and our good. Lord, have mercy. Amen.